And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Lord, these words many of us are familiar with, many of us maybe have even taught before, but perhaps we've not allowed them to resonate in our hearts and to think deeply about how they apply to each of us. And so we ask for your Holy Spirit to do that work, to give us understanding, to give us power to apply, that we can turn that into wisdom And that, Lord, you might work in us and mark us as a church who is Christ-dependent and has these things present in our lives as a community. That is really why we touch on this passage. Because we want you to change us, do a deep work in each of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In the novel 100 Years of Solitude by Garcia Marquez, the author describes in his magical but realistic way a village suffering from an insomnia plague. And as this plague continues, it gradually causes the loss of memory. To try and salvage memory, Marquez describes how a man named Jose developed an elaborate plan that involved labeling everything. I quote, with an inked brush, he marked everything with its name, table, chair, bed, clock, wall, pan. He went on to the corral and marked the animals and plants, cow, goat, pig, hen, banana. As their memory continued to fade, Jose decided that he needed to be even more explicit, so he posted a sign on the cow that read, this is the cow. She must be milked every morning so that she will produce milk, and the milk must be boiled in order to be mixed with coffee to make coffee and milk. Thus, they were living in a reality that was slipping away, momentarily captured by words, but which would escape when they forgot the value of forgotten letters, of written letters. Eventually, the village put a placard up at the entrance to the town that said, God exists, as that knowledge, too, was slipping. God's people, I can attest, I think we could all attest, have seen reality slip away with the church at large because we have forgotten the written letter. The Bible has been shoved to a nether portion in our cultural psyche, only good for occasional inspiration, but certainly nothing to chart a course for life, and certainly not for a nation, God forbid, that happened. It indeed, the Bible, is on the road of being forgotten. 
a former White House press secretary for President Obama, had to backtrack and issue a correction when he attributed to the Bible the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, which of course is not in the Bible. Now such things are either innocent mistakes or pretty audacious to insert something in the Bible we think should be there if it's not, right? The church at large is suffering from forgetting the value of the written word. If there was any passion that I could put in one concept in my heart as a pastor, it would be this. The value of the written word in shepherding the flock of God, and it is being discarded. Some say you should interpret the Bible strictly through Jesus. I mean, if Jesus didn't say it or approve of it, you can throw it out. And if the Bible is out of step with today's cultural sensibilities, such as gay marriage or abortion, chalk it up to Old Testament judgment talk and throw it out. Since science is the final arbiter of truth, we have to interpret everything through the eyes of the scientific community. And so if the scientific community approves of it, I'm good. But if it doesn't, throw it out. Since the church has been wrong before about so many things, has been legalistic and hateful and mean-spirited in the past, then we need to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Whatever claims these kinds of churches make, throw it out. Since the Bible has passages we cannot explain, like Joshua wiping out Jericho, it appears on the surface that these Old Testament stories are just a modern day like Al-Qaeda or ISIS, and they're destroying a particular city. That just causes way too much dissonance, too much confusion. Throw it out. Because people differ. You can't trust any interpretation of the Bible. I mean, people spoke confidently in the past about, you know, trying to use the Bible to justify slavery, and they did it so forcefully. You better not speak as if you are sure of something from the Bible. You cannot trust your interpretation. Any belief you state with such conviction or confidence from the Bible, throw it out. Isn't love the law for all of our actions? Anytime you say something, anything that appears you're judging, that appears awkward, that points the finger at a particular action from the Bible, you're not only judgmental, but you need to throw it out. So you throw out the passages that Jesus didn't utter. You throw out the passages that conflict with culture or science. You say nothing that fundy churches have said. You avoid passages that are confusing. You omit any interpretation that is deemed as controversial or unloving. And what you have left then is a four-minute Celine Dion love song.
Now, I'm not dogging Celine Dion, but if you're using that for instruction on how to live and die, that's a problem. In our second message from this series, Fruit of a Christ-Dependent Church, we see an approach from the Bible that differs from the current trend. Last week, we looked at some other fruits. We looked at the peace of Christ that will guide us into harmony with God. Uh, We noticed the thanksgiving that's to be prominent in the life of the Christian who is Christ-dependent. And today, we're going to discover that when the church is truly in line with Christ, his word is enthusiastically applied. And the irony here is that many churches contend that following Christ means dismissing portions of the Bible. That conflicts with what Paul is saying here. A fruit of a Christ-dependent church is that Christ's word is enthusiastically applied. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. In verse 15 and 17, we read of the peace of Christ, the word of Christ, doing everything in the name of Christ. You don't even need to be a rocket scientist to figure out there is a theme here. There is Christ who is threaded throughout this passage. A healthy church, a fruit-bearing church, is a Christocentric church. Christ is at the center. Christ is the power fueling the church. Christ is the one giving direction in this kind of church. Christ is calling the shots. Christ is the final authority. And how arrogant is it of humankind to claim that they know what Christ wants and dismiss his word. There's no such thing as a healthy church that shoves the word of God to the edge by discrediting portions of it. And listen, it doesn't matter. I don't care if there are 20,000 people that show up for your Sunday show. A church that honors God with eternal fruit is one where the word of God is enthusiastically applied. Paul refers to the word of Christ. The false teachers, you see, came to this church with man-made traditions, with philosophies, religious rules. Uh, They tried to amalgamate the word of God with their philosophies and systems. They didn't succeed. The word of Christ, I believe here, refers to the entire word of God. It makes Christ, think about it, the Bible makes Christ the center of everything. I mean, the Old Testament in its sacrifices was a picture of Christ that would come. The Old Testament prophesied of the coming of Christ. The Gospels portray the very life of Christ. And the epistles give the teaching of the apostles who were followers of Christ. This phrase, word of Christ, is used only once here in Colossians and one other time in Romans. Now, we have the phrases, word of the Lord, word of God. They're used over 300 times in the Bible. These are authoritative statements 
of God's thoughts accurately recorded in Scripture. The Word of God, the Word of the Lord, the Word of Christ. Now, sometimes when a statement like that is used, it it refers specifically to the gospel. The context would dictate that. But always it refers to the communication of God to man. Now, many other religious writings, though, make such a claim, do they not? That they have a revelation from God that is not the Bible. But I want to suggest to you that the Bible stands alone. It stands alone in its unity, its correspondence with archaeology and history, its fulfilled prophecy, its focus upon Christ who entered space and time on this earth. And we can have the fullest confidence that what we hold in our hands today is an accurate representation of what those writers wrote down in the 66 books of the Bible. Why do we know that? Because we have bibliographical evidence that demonstrates that. And it's this kind of confidence that I think Paul has when he writes that this word of Christ is to dwell in you richly. Dwell means to inhabit. It has the idea of being at home. The word of God, in other words, is to be at home in our hearts. It's to have safe passage to our hearts. In other words, we receive it, we read it, we meditate on it, we want it to take root in our hearts. And I love what Second Thessalonians 3.1 says in this regard. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of God may speed ahead and be honored has happened among you. Not picked apart, not discarded, but honored. And how do we honor it? 1 Thessalonians 2.13 tells us when it says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And I think this is the dividing point between the critics And those who accept it, it's the word of God. Or they think it's not. Or at least portions are not. But listen, if we honor Christ, are we not going to honor his instructions and not throw out portions that we don't like? That makes no sense. So your dad said what? Eh, He's just off his rocker. The man's crazy, but I respect him. Really? Sure doesn't sound like it. Paul doesn't just say, let it dwell in you, the word, but let it dwell in you richly. In other words, I wouldn't even want to get close with anything that discredits or dishonors the word. I would never want to put my human opinion above God's instruction. When the word of Christ dwells in you richly, it has unrestricted liberty in your life. There are no areas that are off limits. 
we eagerly seek to apply it. And my dear friends, the signs then of a healthy church that has Christ truly at the center is when we accept the word of God with enthusiasm in our life. And this enthusiasm is not saying, oh man, great sermon, great lesson, really like that. That was quite entertaining. Notice we are to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. Teaching is the orderly arrangement of truth and then conveying it to others. Admonishing is the strong encouragement coming alongside with the word. In other words, we are to make practical and moral application in our lives and for others. Not just some kind of abstract truth. As we administer the word of God, we seek to apply the will of God to our lives. And this is what the Bible calls wisdom. We read it, we apply it, and in between, we meditate on what that means for me that becomes wisdom. Not just words on a page, but when the application is brought into real life, that's what biblical wisdom is. So we study, we meditate, we apply the word, and it abides. It's at home in my life. So when the word of God dwells in us richly, we move in obedience in the will of God. And here is our next mark of a Christ-dependent church. Our worship is sincerely biblical and celebratory. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Worship, my friends, is a natural response that springs from a community that is filled with Christ and his word. I want to jump to the last phrase in this section when it says, thankfulness in your hearts to the Lord. This speaks of a sincerity that springs from our hearts, but it also includes this sense of gratefulness. Don't you get a there's a tone, there's a celebration here. There's, a, there's an enthusiasm. In fact, that word enthusiasm means in theos, in God. And for the believer, thankfulness in hearts is always in God. The idea is that this worship is informed by the truth that God reveals to us. And part of that is understanding that that we were yet in our sins and that, and that God has, has drawn us to him in Christ. And so we respond with nothing but, but gratefulness. I can't believe that I get to commune and relate to this God. I'm not sitting here dictating how this is going to happen. I just know that God loves me. God has accepted me in Christ. How can anything but thankfulness flow from a heart that is consumed with that kind of truth? But let me allow you in on one of the most prevalent pain in the butts that other pastors have. Every pastor I know struggles with trying to appease parishioners with worship that everyone says they enjoy. But let me tell you something. Two people in the room cannot agree on music. My marriage is proof of it. The music she likes is nothing like I like. Try then doing it with hundreds or thousands. 
Part of the problem is we attach one musical style with worship. Now, I think this is consistent with the passage. I don't want to just sit here and get on a little hobby horse. But I think when we pine for more hymns or more contemporary worship, we miss the point. We're missing the point, my friends. I don't say this angrily. I say this appealing to you as your shepherd so that we can enjoy worship to the fullest. And I think Paul just cuts through these kind of worship wars that go on today. Because, see, if we come to worship armed with sincere hearts, gripped by our own sin, overcome by the gratefulness of the grace of God in our lives, I could walk into the first and second grade Sunday school room singing songs and my heart would overflow because my heart resonates with the truth of the word of God therein. R.E.O. White, that's right, R.E.O. White, a now deceased British minister, said this regarding the overflowing spirit captured in this passage. He said this, the surest sign that you are carrying a full bucket is wet feet. Think about that. See, when our lives are overflowing, they are full with Christ. How can anything but joyful worship and thanksgiving spring forth. Now, I think Paul's goal here when he mentions the three kinds of of songs is not to provide some fine-tuned analysis and differentiation between the three. Rather, we are to look at it as a whole. In other words, I think he's saying that it's a way for a congregation to know what it looks like when Christ is the life of the church. There's going to be a variety of ways that that takes place. There's going to be celebration and worship that is educated, instructed by the word of God. And our instruction and admonishing and worship are to be rooted in the word of Christ. That's what Paul is saying. Worship is not some personal agenda or private pleasure, but an extension of a life clearly focused on Christ and his word. And when a cultural or personal standard becomes the measure of worship, not a vehicle, but the, 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 the measure of worship, then I think we've been duped. And what you see today is entertainment quickly is the plumb line. We please self with any euphoric expression, just throw in the name of Jesus, and there, that's great worship. Hmm. You know, when I was a kid in high school, we went to North Carolina. We'd go to these backwood churches, 30 five people maybe in a church, and they had some sad banana upright piano, completely out of tune, a person playing it who obviously never had a lesson in their life, all right, and were singing along from the hymnal, and you know what I saw? Joy. People were there with great joy, ministering to one another, worshiping God. How does that take place when you can't play the piano? How does that take place when that piano stinks? Because it had the right heart, had the right focus. You know, we have the privilege of, of having expert musicians who are led with excellence. So what excuse is going to stand in our way of worshiping in a celebratory manner? 
Some people have said that uh, psalms are lyrics taken from Scripture, hymns are compositions addressed directly to God, spiritual songs is more of an all-encompassing word, or maybe it even refers to spontaneous singing. But mentioning these expressions again, there's an emphasis on the content, not on the style of music or music itself, but on on a variety. And notice, there are no prohibitions or injunctions about body position or, 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 or clapping or instrument use. I think the body of Christ has great freedom here, multiple styles that can be utilized here. But the point is, and we get off track, the focus is it's to be fed by the Word of God and focus upon the person of Christ. So our hearts can spring forth with abundant worship. Listen, and I say this because I want our worship to be celebratory. I want everyone in the room to sense the presence of God. That's my only goal here. This is not condemnation, but listen, the mature Christian will quit blaming the style of music as a hindrance of worship. Because they will take any psalm or hymn or song and they will celebrate. We are talking about an audience with the king of kings. And we need, listen, to understand who we're worshiping and quit these lame excuses. And perhaps the casualness in the church like ours I think we can be guilty of this. It's almost like we take pride in our casualness, and frankly, sometimes the casualness trumps the worship. Listen to what I'm saying. I'm just asking the question. Again, I can't look into people's heart. I can't judge. But does it appear we're ready to celebrate with thankful spilling over in our hearts when we slip in here anytime we want We sing whenever we feel like it. We sip our coffee in the hallway. We'll mosey on in 30 minutes, just miss the worship. It doesn't matter. I'm talking with my friends, and I didn't get a chance. We're doing worship. We're singing to the King of Kings. Your level of participation, listen, your level of participation says more about you than it does about worship. could Paul and Silas in a maximum security prison break out in song? They didn't have the piano. They didn't have the instruments. They didn't have a good worship leader. Uh, They weren't worried at that point, I think, about whether it was hymns or contemporary songs. Their hearts were springing forth with praise. Because they were cheerful, and nothing was going to stop them from praising their God, who they understood at that point is in control and gives them peace and allowed their heart to just be thankful, even in the midst of prison. The point here is not our obligation. The point is, listen, what we get to do to worship God with overflowing hearts. Let's quit the excuses And have our hearts prepared. If I have anything that gets in the way of me worshiping God with a full heart, that is not on Nate, that is not on the instrumentalist, that's on me. And I have to accept 
responsibility for my own heart to worship well. Verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Here we see the Lordship of Christ is gratefully welcomed in all areas. Verse 17 stands as a capstone here to this section by providing an all-encompassing, all-inclusive injunction of doing everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's talking about the Lordship of Christ here. Even, uh, even says the Lord Jesus See, when we do something in the name of Christ, we are operating consistent with his character. We do the same thing when we pray. We, we end the prayer, you know, uh, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Why do we say that? Is that like putting a stamp on the letter I heard once saying? You know, it really doesn't get there unless you say those magic words in the name of Christ. It's not the words themselves. It's the intent of the heart that I am praying consistent with what Christ would want. I am praying consistent with his character. I am praying consistent with his instruction for me. And it's the same when we do all things in the name of Christ, we are operating consistent with the character of Christ. And he says, we are doing this in word or deed. That takes in every aspect of life. Deeds can be, you know, teaching. It could be, it could be eating, exercising, driving, cleaning a house, shopping, visiting with somebody, working, playing sports, everything. The Cardinals needed that last week, but they did not. That's why I'm wearing black. I'm mourning, by the way. Have you met my wife, June Carter, who's sitting here in the front? Listen, Jesus is to be Lord of your money, of your entertainment, of your sex life, of your relationships, of all aspects. There are no areas excluded from him. Everything we do is to be, and I'm stealing this quote from another commentator, in harmony with his revealed will, in subjection to his authority, in dependence on his power. I love that. Couldn't have said that any better. In harmony with his revealed will, in subjection to his authority, in dependence upon his power. And notice, again, plopped in this passage is thankfulness. Verse 15, it says we're to be thankful. Verse six, uh, 16 says we're to sing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. And here in verse 17, we're to give thanks to God through Christ. We could not know God through Christ. We could not commune with God through Christ. We could not be reconciled with God except through Christ. Thankfulness springs forth from us as we put our focus upon Christ. So we're, we're thanking God. We're worshiping him. We are, we are into his word. We enjoy the peace of God. I mean, that is the Christian who's operating on all cylinders. And that's what Paul is trying to communicate, that, that there would be a church that is fruit-bearing in comparison to these uh, false teachers that we're talking about, a faux spirituality. Paul is describing a community of believers that have the real thing. And there you have it. And that, my friends, is to be our focus. That is to mark who we are 
I want our strength as a church. It's got to be those core values of the word and worship, enjoying intimacy with God, enjoying his peace, being thankful people. You know what? Those kind of people, man, they are going to be serving like crazy. They're going to be loving well. Why? Because they are operating out of gratefulness and thankfulness. You can't stop that. And you know what? If they can't do it here, they're going to find some place they can. Let's pray.